welcome to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Our usual host, Matt Brusky, our deputy director, is on VACA. So it's just myself, and it's our special guest from last week, who is coming back again this week, Rebecca Lynch, the political director of the Wisconsin Working Families Party. So, Rebecca, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we have a lot of topics to talk about today, and we're going to talk about the new big Trump healthcare executive order and other healthcare issues in Wisconsin. We're going to talk about uh, the Sanctuary Cities fight, which is occurring actually as we record this uh, program on Thursday in Wisconsin here. We are going to talk about a big thing in education that came down this week around charter schools. We're going to talk about a little bit about Foxconn, and we'll talk about Puerto Rico and about industrial hemp, just a teaser. I know everyone wants to hear about industrial hemp. But first, let's talk about Trump and health care. So, Rebecca, you probably heard uh, that President Trump has thrown his hands up that Congress won't do anything to abolish the Affordable Care Act and radically restructure Medicaid, and he has his own executive order. So President Trump is expected to sign this executive order today, uh, and there are two elements of it. Um, And Robert, I think you know a lot more about this than I do, so I'd be interested um, to hear you explain them. But one has to do with temporary plans. The other has to do with uh, the association plans. Right. And so let me just say something even more broadly. you know, the result of this whole healthcare debate is, is that the public is really now strongly in favor of guaranteeing everyone has health care as a right no matter what, that there are record polling numbers on that. And Trump continues to insist on in going the opposite direction and continues this with this conservative line that somehow there are cute little fixes, there go lower costs, right? But what unifies all of them is, is that they want to break up the market, segment it, right, and find some way for some people to get cheaper insurance. Now, cheaper is no is better. Uh, but the problem is if you don't put everyone in together, you can't guarantee everyone health care. The only way you can afford uh, to, to have affordable coverage for people who have health conditions, who are getting older, et cetera, is for their, to spread risk apar- across a large group of people. That's what, in fact, a big program like Medicare does or what Medicaid does. And it's what the Affordable Care Act marketplaces do as well because they essentially take a lot of individuals and put them in what is like a larger group. And so both of these go the opposite direction and in, in very insidious ways. So we should go through both of them. The first one you mentioned, Rebecca, was these association plans. And the idea here is that, and this is a way of buying across state lines, that associations um, of of small businesses could essentially uh, go across state lines and sell sell, sell insurance to a larger group. So that, and the argument is, is that somehow they will find cheaper insurance. Problem is, uh, an association plan located in Kansas, there's no reason to believe it can negotiate lower prices in Texas or in Wisconsin, just for example, or in New York. Uh, but because it would be considered a, an employer plan, um, it would not be um, subject to some of the Affordable Care Act regulations, like it would not be uh, subject to the essential benefits requirement that all basic health services that one would need are covered. And so if prices are lower at all, they're going to be lower because they have, they're have they selling dangerous, skimpy plans that don't cover things, and especially don't cover things that people uh, who have chronic conditions tend to need, right, because those are more expensive. In addition, it's a way, and this is why I said about Republicans, conservatives saying that we're not all together, 
versus being all together. It is a way to siphon off healthier people. Association plans are notorious for figuring out ways like insurance companies like to only insure healthy people and to make sure the risky people are left behind. And what does that do? The people left behind, their costs on the ACA marketplace will skyrocket. So what does that mean? That means it's simply a way to sabotage the Affordable Care Act while giving some healthier people dangerous coverage. It won't be when they need it and spiking the cost for everyone else who really needs health care uh, at this moment. Yeah, and so I think just to underscore one of the points you made, one of the really um, insidious things about these plans is that it, uh, as Robert mentioned, you know, doesn't require that they cover those like 10 key things that healthcare plans are supposed to, to cover and also does not necessarily have the same pre-existing condition requirements that we've come to expect and love about the General Affordable Care Act. So, uh, you know, these plans are lower grade plans that healthier people can be in. And then when they are not healthy, they can go into the other plans. Therefore, like everyone higher risk is in one, one plan that costs more money. And it won't be necessarily that they can deny people with pre-existing conditions, but it will be you'll structure the benefits in a way that doesn't help people with chronic conditions. And the other thing you do is the associations can build their groups any way they want. So they'll go around and look for companies to have younger workers and avoid companies that have older workers. Uh, so there's discrimination takes place that way. And then people are left behind. And the Affordable Care Act marketplace has become even more expensive. So it is an insidious way to try to sabotage the Affordable Care Act. Um, it, it flaunts, it goes in the, against everything we know we need to do in order to guarantee affordable coverage for everyone. So it's very, very sleazy, and it shows this continuing willingness to play politics with people's health and essentially kill people just to get his way. I mean, he, Trump's kind of childishness about I'm going to repeal it, I'm going to undermine it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it is parallel, it's not separate from the conservative movement. It's the way the conservative movement is oriented towards healthcare, and it shows a ruthlessness that really should stun Americans, that you would play politics with people's health and their lives in this fashion. I totally agree, and I, I wanna throw it over to you in a second to talk about the temporary plans, mm -hmm. um, but before that, I think just to follow your point, you know, this is something um, that we've seen from the Trump administration for quite some time. The goal is to undermine what they call Obamacare, uh, and if they can't do it in Congress, to do it by any means possible. And so today's executive order is a continuation of that. But one of the things that they've done more quietly, but is also really disconcerting, is they have cut from 12 weeks to six weeks the open enrollment period for people to enroll in Obamacare. They've slashed advertising. The HHS slashed it by 90%. Uh, they have stopped uh, funding assistance for people to sign up. And they banned their regional directors from even helping enrollment efforts. It's outrageous. Yeah. It's outrageous. And, and you know, one of the key points that you just made, Robert, um, about these association plans carries over into the marketplace generally, which is if we don't have younger people, healthier people signing up, then we can't afford to take care of everybody. And you and so, you know, the argument that the Trump administration has made, just as like a quick aside, is, well, it's been three years. If you don't know about it now, then we can't force you to sign up. There's no point in doing all this outreach and assistance. But obviously that's not the case. There are kids who just turned 26 and come off their parents' plans. There are people who have just gotten a promotion or coming off of Medicare. And so, you know, we need to invest in this, get people enrolled so that everyone is covered. Um, that was a rant. So you No, know, you're totally right. You made a really critical point here. And that is 
people who, in general, not everyone, but in general, people who know they have health condition, let's say they have diabetes, just for example, are more motivated in general to, go, to sign up and get the health care. It's people who are healthier who may not be, right? And so it's not just about making sure everyone's covered because, by the way, someone can be, you know, come down with an illness or injury any time, right, in their lives. So even the healthier people that might temporarily benefit from lower premiums and association plan, you know, they're going to age and they're going to be at risk if they ever have a health condition or an injury, right? And so you really want something where you're, you're, you're safe your whole life, right? And, that, and this goes against that. But the amazing thing here is that by cutting promotion, you're actually sabotaging the Affordable Care Act and you're making it more expensive for the people who need it most. And so literally, it is in the interest of everyone who has a health condition or may have one for us to have as many people in as possible to spend the money on promotion. The only reason you wouldn't do that is if you're trying to get your way in a selfish, really cruel way just to get your political way and sabotage a system and, and literally damage and kill people, because that's what we're talking about here. So back to today's executive order, um, did you want to talk quickly about the temporary plans? Sure. So there's a provision, and it, it gets very complicated, so I don't want to make this overly complicated in healthcare, but there is a way that someone on a temporary basis, uh, like the between jobs or something, go get a three-month plan, and so and those are more affordable, don't necessarily have all the same protections. Um, and so he's expanding that into a giant kind of loophole where they can be 12 months long. So therefore, insurance companies start offering very substandard plans, uh, bring them at a lower cost, and siphon people off. And that, again, will siphon off healthier people, and again, will raise rates for everyone who needs comprehensive health insurance. And so it is another act of sabotage, but it sounds like I'm providing you more options and cheaper insurance. And one thing I think listeners should be aware of is Conservative, the conservative movement for the last 20 years at least, uh, longer, but increasingly has been trying to offer that they have conservative solutions to the same problems. But if you really read the major books on the conspiracy of the far right, on the Koch brothers, on the Bradley Foundation, this is all just a front in order to try to undermine basic protection. So they're trying to tell the public, because they have no uh, regard for democracy, to run a limit democracy, right? That, oh, we have a better health care plan for you that's not going to cost money and it's going to be more choice and it's just going to be great. It's going to be excellent. So that's what this playbook is. And this depends upon the American people not understanding what's going on. The problem they have is, is that they that the, the jig is up because 17% of the public supported any of these Trump care plans, uh, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, as we call them. And I don't think this act is going to be popular either, despite the attempt to package it up as reform. Absolutely. Um, so I think uh, we are ready to wrap up this segment. So. Yes, we are. So we will be right back with some healthcare discussion at the state level, some big initiatives being introdu introduced this week on healthcare costs in Wisconsin, and you are listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, this is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action in Wisconsin, and our usual host, Matt Brusky, our Deputy Director, is on vacation, and I'm here with Rebecca Lynch, um, our panelist from the Wisconsin Working Families Party, uh, their political director. So we had the last segment talked about the latest Trump Care by executive order, I guess it's Trump Care 4.0, um, but 
there's also news here at the state level. There's some interesting uh, cost initiatives here in Wisconsin coming from Democrats. It's an exciting day here. Uh, there are going to be three bills introduced in Madison. And uh, Robert, I'd like to ask you about each of them in turn. Um, the first uh, is really interesting to me because it's just basic transparency uh, for an industry that's incredibly not transparent. Um, if you could talk about that. Yeah, and let me take a half step back. Uh, prescription drug costs are one of the main driving forces in healthcare inflation and the you know public outcry about costs. Uh, it is very predatory. Uh, we haven't we have prescription drug companies essentially charging what the market will bear, backed by Wall Street. Wall Street wants maximum profits, and re without any regard really to people's lives or their financial livelihood. And so, seeing massive five hundred percent increases in drugs that have existed for years and years and have been no extra cost to, just outrageous. It really is like someone going and selling thousand dollar bottles of water in a disaster area, like a hurricane area. It's that kind of price gouging. And they have managed, because of their political power, uh, not to have the federal government use any of its leverage to, to negotiate with them and lower their prices. That happened with Medicare Part D under President Bush, but it also happened with Obamacare, where Obama didn't want them to put millions and millions of dollars into attacking the law, and therefore they left unscathed there as well, and, and it's getting even worse. And so uh, State Representative uh, Deb Colsty uh, from Janesville and uh, State Senator uh, John Erpenbach from Middleton um, have a series of prescription drug bills that are really very reasonable. So you had mentioned the first one, Rebecca. The first one was around transparency, which seems fairly reasonable. I mean, very reasonable, right? All it says really is is that if you have more than a 25% increase or if you come in with a new drug that costs more than 30000 a year, and we're talking a lot of drugs cost more than that, it's stunning, that you have to justify either the increase or the cost and explain for the public in, a, in, in documents you turn over to state government why the drug has to be that expensive. It does nothing else. So in other words, uh, it, if the, it, what, it, what will happen is, is if they can't justify it, that could lead to further action by the legislature, but would require legislative action to do anything else. Uh, and by the way, prescription drug companies, Rebecca, have nothing to fear if, in fact, they can justify these prices. We get their public relations about how it's all the research they do, even though most of them spend much more in marketing than research, and a lot of the money is federal money for research, right? But if they can justify the, these shocking, and I'll give you an example in a second, these shocking increases, uh, then they have nothing to fear. I have a feeling that they, I don't know, Rebecca, am I being cynical? I have a feeling that they will fight bitterly against transparency and that the Republican majority won't even a hearing on this bill. But what do you think? I think that's likely. I mean, the prescription drug industry uh, has a tremendous grip on, as you just mentioned, our federal and our state um, political system. Uh, the money in politics is out of control, and the prescription drug industry is one of the greatest offenders. So I imagine that they will go kicking and screaming against any transparency. Yeah, and let me give you an example of a, of a really horrendous increase. You know, Governor Walker runs around talking about the opiate crisis all the time. Not that he actually has done anything about the epidemic in any real way other than do a few pilot programs. We'll get to later. He had a bizarre tie-in with that and an agricultural issue this week that we'll get to later on the show. <laughs> uh, but if you take um, uh, naloxone, which is, which is the underlying drug for um, Narcon, which people, as people know, that's a way if someone's had a drug overdose of uh, nullifying the effect and preventing uh, an immediate death, right? So it saves lives. And there are a lot of cities, a lot of school districts, a lot of nonprofits trying to have it on hand. 
well, this is pretty vital, right? This is a life and death situation, right? Well, the company that, uh, that sells naloxone, and there's only a couple that do, has moved the price up from $690 in 2014 for a dose to $4,500, uh, which is a 500% increase in just two years. So all this bill, so this is literally, by the way, sales have not gone up dramatically despite the opioid epidemic, which tells you that literally, because there's certainly more of a market for it, that literally this is denying access. And, uh, and we've, we know some horrible cases where people died for lack of access uh, to this drug. All the transparency bill would do is require that these companies actually justify that 5% increase. And... Uh, of course, they can't because what it is is Wall Street is telling them, we want maximum profit. If you can sell it for 5% more, then we want you to do so because we want maximum profit. And that it's just profiteering of the worst kind imaginable. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a tremendous example because obviously, you know, price gouging of prescription drugs uh, is so insidious uh, in part because many of these drugs are life-saving drugs. Uh, for people with really serious illness and the sickest among us are suffering. But that example shows how it impacts all of us, right? So it impacts our public safety. It's price gouging, not just individuals, but our counties, our governments, our police departments. Right. Uh, and it, it's something that I think should be a bipartisan issue, right? We shouldn't allow uh, you know, Wall Street run uh, prescription companies to price gouge our Wisconsin police departments, and right? this doesn't even say we're not allowing it. This says that we just they have to justify it. And so then once they can't, then the legislature could decide what we should do about it, right? Uh, but this is just even uh, getting around all of their public relations about why they're charging these sort of prices. And I mean, you know, just the idea that, that medicine should be that for profit and that cynical and that much about extracting as much money as possible is just uh, shocking and disgusting. And But this only requires... In this case, we would, this company would just have to actually file a rationale. And we, uh, we have a feeling we'd be having a podcast about and a radio show about how ridiculous the rationale was. <laughs> so, so there are two other bills that I want to ask you about. Um, and the first of those is a bill that would regulate the pharmacy benefits managers or the PBMs. Can you talk about that? Yeah, they're the middle middle men, I guess. There are probably women involved, but there's probably <laughs> a lot of men, probably more men than women. And so they cut all sorts of deals, and, they, and a lot of, a lot, there are a lot of health advocates and, and experts who think that they're raising the cost of prescription drugs as well. And so then getting kickbacks from prescription drug companies to put more expensive drugs forward rather than cheaper drugs. And so people like, with, like a large employer will go to them to manage their prescription drug benefit. And so what this does is, since they're playing a huge role in the market and the availability and the, and the affordability of prescription drugs, this simply starts to regulate them just like we already regulate insurance companies and puts it out of the insurance commissioner's office. So it seems common sense that we should regulate a business that has that much effect on people's health and their, and their livelihoods. Got it. Um, and let's talk about this last bill, which is particularly interesting. Um, it prohibits health plans from changing what drugs and medical devices they cover um, during the during the plan year. Yeah, and this is a huge problem. You know, we have open enrollment in the Affordable Care Act. Someone, say, with a chronic condition, signs up for a plan because it covers um, at no cost or at low cost the drug they need in order to treat their chronic condition. And then 
you can't leave once you sign up until open enrollment again. So if you choose Humana, Plan, whatever it is, XYZ, then you're stuck with Humana XYZ for a year. But Humana XYZ can suddenly decide, oh, we're changing, we're taking the drug off the formulary, or we're, we're changing what level of formulary it's at. So it's going to go from being a $10 deductible to, to you know, you paying half the cost, like $500 a month, and you can't change your health plan. Same with a medical device. And so what this says is that it's, it's contract, it's a deal. And if, you are, if you're signing up for plans based on how they affect you and, and, and the medical care and the drugs and the devices you need, then you shouldn't be able to change the plan mid-year. And so that's all this does. The only people who are going to be against this are the insurance companies who want the right to change whenever they want, even though they've locked you into having to have that plan for a year. It's kind of amazing that that's not already the law, but mm-hmm. uh, great. So we have a, a couple minutes right now. Um, I want to make sure that folks who are listening know what they can do to support these efforts. So you mentioned these are being uh, introduced today as we're taping. So by the time people listen to it, um, these bills should be introduced. Right? Yes. So you, and it, again, they're sponsored by Representative Deb Colsty from Janesville and Senator John Erpenbach from Middleton. And you should call your state representative and your state senator and say that you want support for the uh, prescription drug transparency bill, the bill that regulates uh, 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 pharmacy benefit managers, and the bill that doesn't let insurance companies change your what, what it's covered and what the cost of medical devices are or prescription drugs are during the, the term of the, the year of the contract. So just to kind of sum, we need to be making advances at the state level as we see the national mess unfold. What's fascinating is is that conservatives in Wisconsin have done nothing about health care costs, nothing whatsoever, and just want to run around saying that's Obamacare's fault, which is absurd that the public doesn't agree with. And so it's important to put these sort of initiatives in front of them. So I really want to commend uh, Representative Kulsty and Senator Erpenbach because if you don't actually force them to take to make a choice and say, do I think prescription drug companies should have to justify their massive rate increases, uh, then we don't call the question and they can kind of just slide by. And so this is part of what we need to do. And now we need to work with legislators to develop public issues that then help the public make distinctions between different candidates and understand who is on their side and who isn't. Sure. And I'll just say, you know, uh, as we wrap up this healthcare discussion, uh, in the first segment, you know, we talked a lot about the executive order Donald Trump is signing today, which, by the way, we think is illegal and probably will go to the courts. But as you're calling your state reps, uh, we should also call uh, the people who represent us in Congress. Absolutely. Keep calling. And so uh, that's it for this segment. We'll be right back at Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. I'm joined by Rebecca Lynch, the Political Director for the Wisconsin Working Families Party. And we talked about healthcare in the previous two segments, but now we are going to go to education. And this has kind of been a little under the radar, Rebecca, but there's this huge grant that the state government has suddenly received around charter schools. Yeah, so we got some pretty surprising news yesterday. Uh, Wisconsin has been awarded $95 million from the U.S. Department of Education in a charter school grant. Uh, So, you know, Robert, I have a lot of questions about this. Uh, One is, since when did we apply for this grant? Why did we apply for this grant? 
so maybe if you could just open it up by kind of explaining who in our state government would have been involved in this discussion um, with the Trump administration about getting this charter school grant and, and what it means that they yeah, did that. Yeah, charter schools, there's a whole variety of charter schools. Uh, there are some of them that are chartered by actually school districts and are more like public schools and have have teachers who have a right to form a union, et cetera, could be part of, uh, of WEAC or AFT. Um, and there are others that are called non-instrumentality charter schools, which any other public entity can charter and, and, and function like voucher schools, okay, and are part of the whole conspiracy to siphon resources away from public education and to de-skill education by having less uh, trained, less skilled teachers. And so what's bizarre about this, and education advocates aren't sure how this happened, the Department of Public Instruction, which is run by an ally, someone who's running as a progressive for governor, Tony Evers, applied for this grant, and we got the we Wisconsin got the largest grant in the country. It's supposed to be to expand the number of charter schools in the state. And even more strange, and I want you to think about this, Rebecca, Tony Evers says in the Wisconsin State Journal story that our federal grant will help us expand charter schools across and throughout Wisconsin, especially for our high school kids, for low-income families. All kids, regardless of their circumstances, deserve access to innovative opportunities through our public schools. This great grant will help us promote more collaborations, partnerships, to take lessons learned in charter schools and apply that success across the state. So any thoughts, Rebecca? Because we've not talked to, to Tony, to, to, Sec to Secretary Evers, why he would be praising the expansion of charter schools in yeah, this way. I had to blink when I saw that that was his quote because it almost doesn't sound like him. It sounds straight out of a Republican talking point, out of a school privatizer talking point. Again, you know, I appreciate the distinction between instrumentality and non-instrumentality. Um, you know, I think generally we support, you know, innovation and exciting new ideas. Uh, but all kids do, regardless of their circumstances, deserve access to good public schools. No one is disputing that. Um, and the idea, that, the fact that the quote is framed in that way, that we need this money for an alternative to current public schools because kids deserve to have good education is a, a way of framing the issue that, again, uh, to your point, has been like a, a major narrative of people who are trying to destabilize public education. And so I, I'm, would I, you know, as you said, we haven't talked uh, to Evers. I'd be interested to hear more about what he has to say about this. And how would this even happen? I mean, there are some education advocates who think may, were wondering if maybe a, a mid-level you know, official had applied and Tony wasn't involved, but you have Tony with these quotes about how wonderful it's going to be. Um, and it really is. I mean, charter schools originally were, I mean, they were developed by people like Albert Schenker, the former head of the American Federation of Teachers, as experiments run by public school teachers to be able to do things beyond what a large public school would usually do in a, when, in a more regimented era when they came up. Now they've become an end around public education, a way to de-skill education um, and to siphon resources from public schools uh, that need them badly. So you could, though, maybe, I don't know, use this to actually hold charter schools more accountable, hold them up to standards, make sure that they actually serve special needs kids, which they tend not to, and they dump those on uh, those kids on the public schools and don't don't share costs, right? So in other words, they, can, they, can, they dump the cost, uh, they can, which harms the kids and the school. Um, and they don't have as high-quality teachers if they're non-instrumentality charters, don't have the same standards. So maybe we could use the money to actually... Uh, bring these charter schools up to up to snuff. I would absolutely hope 
that Secretary Evers is not planning to expand any non-students totality charter schools, and at least these will be sco uh, schools run by public school districts, which means you have democratic control. In other words, the school district is democratically, the school board is elected. That doesn't happen with the other charter schools at all. They're, they're just like voucher schools for all practical purposes. Yeah, I mean, that would certainly be, I guess, a silver lining, if you could call it that. Um, but I think if, if this money is a mechanism by which we can you know, ensure that there's some kind of accountability, transparency, and standards, uh, yeah, I, I mean, that is a silver lining. Uh, you know, just to be a little political about this for a minute, as you mentioned, Tony Evers is one of the many people running for governor on the Democratic Party ticket right now. Um, well, let me say this. Uh, everywhere you go in the state, people feel like public schools are under attack. We are losing teachers. Rural counties are having a hard time finding teachers. Uh, the Racine public schools are now under attack. Uh, they've been losing teachers and are in danger of losing more. Uh, and we desperately need resources. So politically, it's curious to me that someone who, as you mentioned, is positioning themselves as a progressive is not being a lion out there in defense of public schools, is not you know, every quote, every press conference saying, we desperately need more resources. We need to stop descaling public education. We need to help grow uh, the, the ability of public schools to really support our communities and educate our kids. And instead, you know, this quote and this initiative is framed as creating an alternative to public schools. And I just find it incredibly curious, again, for someone who's running as a progressive, um, to not be saying the things that I would want them to say, and then to, to be saying this. So I have a lot of questions. I'm sure that we'll be hearing more about it in the weeks ahead. Uh, but uh, this was very shocking to me. Well, we will keep track of it. Maybe there's more quotes and other stories that will provide shed some light on this. We'll see. Uh, there's other things going around in Wisconsin, Rebecca. <laughs> For example, Foxconn continues to chug along. Uh, it's, and it's more than a $3 billion giveaway. We now know that there's a huge local giveaway as well. So and we also know they plan to start construction in October 2018, which, curiously, is right during the home stretch of the governor's race. Uh, <laughs> just, just saying. So... Uh, can you can you, what do you think of the big Racine uh, subsidy on top of the state's three billion dollar bribe to Foxconn? I think that uh, it is a really um, painful extraction from the county of Racine and also the village of Mount Pleasant. And I think that's part of the story that's really being lost here. Uh, we talked a lot about the three billion dollars of incentives overall and what that means coming out of the state. Um, you know, of course the um, governor and others saying that it's only incentives that they get if they create jobs, uh, but other folks... Which isn't even true, because half of it's just for building the plant. Absolutely, yeah. And, and the Weed Act will be the ones to uh, <laughs> decide whether jobs are created. It, absolutely, yeah. No, and I think um, as, uh, I think it was uh, our state rep, Jonathan Brostov, put it during those hearings, you know, this is money that is not going to our universities, not going to public education. It's not just money in a vacuum. We should think about where it's coming from, who it's coming from. It's coming from us. Uh, but what I am interested in learning more about, um, and I think there needs to be a lot more transparency here, is given this you know, I feel very accelerated construction period. Um, who's doing the work? How are the contractors being chosen? Is it competitive bidding? All of these things that the, the public has a right to know. And on top of that, you know, we've seen reports of 
the government willing to being willing to use eminent domain to tell people in Mount Pleasant they need to leave their own property um, in order for this to be built. So, you know, who would ha I'd be interested to see what happens with that if people are going to be kicked out of their homes or not. I don't know why you would have any doubts about any of this. I'm sure they have this all under control. It would all be in our interest. But, you know, WEDEC, Wisconsin Air Development Corporation, Governor Walker's uh, failed and controversial jobs agency, mysteriously, they well, first they had a meeting to approve the Foxconn contract in closed session. Even though we know what the contract is, because it was leaked up by the Trump administration, they still insisted on closed session and banned the reporters. And then they delayed action. We don't know why. So that's all very curious. I doubt it's uh, to add any of the standards that you're proposing, Rebecca. Sorry to disappoint you, yeah. but there may be something going on with our publicly funded agency, which it operates in secret to decide what to do with Foxconn. Yeah, and I think it speaks to a, a broader conversation that we need to have again around the governor's race on economic development and subsidies. And, uh, you know, I, I think many of us and people listening to the podcast right now believe that if public dollars are involved, there needs to be increased transparency, not less. There need to be standards to create good jobs, including good jobs for Wisconsinites. And that's something that I want to see discussed. You know, I think there are opportunities here um, to train folks to get jobs at Foxconn or on the construction um, and I, I would really like to hear more about that. I think there are people in Racine, including the city of Racine, which has a mayor's race on Tuesday, who are desperately in need of jobs. So we will obviously, on Battleground Wisconsin, continue to track the unfolding Foxconn situation, what I called in my original testimony in the assembly, a scandal waiting to happen. Uh, so probably it's going to be a little look like Governor Walker's jobs agency, WEDAC, where we held a press conference before its passage in 2011 uh, with dire warnings of what would happen, and we were greatly underestimated how bad it would be. Let's put it that way. We, even we couldn't imagine. So I think that's, there's going to be some of that with Foxconn. So we have a couple other big topics, though, on Battleground Wisconsin, and we'll talk about them after this break. Welcome back uh, to Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, this is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action Wisconsin. I'm joined by Rebecca Lynch, the Political Director of the Wisconsin Working Families Party. And we already did our segments on health care, on Foxconn, on charter schools expanding in Wisconsin. Uh, but there are some other interesting federal and state issues. One is, is that our illustrious U.S. Senator, you thought I was going to say Tammy Baldwin, but no, Ron Johnson... Um, was in Puerto Rico, I'm sure, to the great relief of the Puerto Rican people, and uh, uh, said that there needs to be more attention to Puerto Rico, that there's a real danger of the electrical grid going down entirely and not being up and endangering people's lives, like hospitals operating on emergency generators, etc. So that seemed, Rebecca, in sharp contrast uh, to President Trump, who tweeted a couple days ago that his incredible efforts in Puerto Rico were unappreciated. And then uh, today, as in Thursday, he tweeted that, that PR cannot expect us to keep uh, helping it and having emergency responders there forever. So already threatening to like pull out support when, when Puerto Rico has not even remotely been rebuilt or, or, or built to a sustainable level. Yeah, uh, you know, it's three weeks. Um, 
since the storm and 84% of the island is still without electricity, two thirds of all the cell phone towers are still down. It's very much um, a crisis and catastrophe in Puerto Rico impacting American citizens. Uh, I'm, I'm quite frankly amazed um, and at the same time not at all surprised because this follows a pattern um, that President Trump has had since he was a candidate and before he was a candidate of um, you know dog whistle racism, um, treating people of color differently, um, really trying to create that division. Again, these are American citizens. They are in the middle of a, what I would say is a humanitarian crisis and uh, are very much in need of help. And instead he has, while golfing, um, degraded and derided their elected officials, the Puerto Rican people who are suffering, saying they're not doing enough to help themselves, finally, under tremendous pressure, goes to Puerto Rico, throws paper towels at people in a way that's just, like, really shocking. I forgot about that. That was right. totally bizarre. Totally bizarre. Um, you know, and, and now is, you know, he tweeted, I think, this morning, um, as of taping, that, you know, the, the government can't stay there forever, that the military and FEMA aren't going to be able to stay there forever, which is, I don't understand why he is doing that, except to maybe stir the pot of some latent racism. It also racism. makes it sound like it's some other foreign country, right? There is here. It's America, <laughs> right? Did he say there? Well, you know, the people can't, emergency responders can't remain in Texas forever. Well, I mean, it's what it's like saying. Um, and then, of course, there's even a broader level, independent of this weird thing where Trump was uninterested in Puerto Rico, then tried to prove he was interested, and uh, but as a strange way of showing it, and then it's the best relief, the best ever uh, kind of stuff, bravado you get from him, kind of like Trump University was the greatest higher education institution ever. Uh, but there's an even broader area. These huge incidents, I mean, having this many Category 5 hurricanes, right, is clearly indication of human-made climate change. And there are two things you have to do around climate change. One is you have to reduce the impact. I mean, we're nothing like what's gonna happen if we get a six degree increase. Then it's like that, then it's like this times a thousand as far as the impact. But secondly, and by the way, the impact is more on low-income people of color because it's gonna hit the southern hemisphere and the southern northern hemisphere much more, so places like it, like the Caribbean. And then furthermore, uh, there's not only the reducing the, the impact by reducing carbon, which he's against, he pulled out of Paris, right? And he wants to have more coal mining, right? And promises all the coal mine jobs are coming back, which they're not anyway. Uh, but furthermore, you have to build up resilience to these because we already gonna have a certain amount of warming. If we do well, we go to two degrees, so we still have a lot more natural disasters. And you have to do it in, in an equitable way. You can see how much more vulnerable a Puerto Rico is with its level of development than say a Texas or a Florida is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, this is, I hate to make an economic argument about things like this. Um, I'm about to, but, you know, it's human beings, human lives. That is what is important. We People are not dollar signs. That said, if we do not invest in resiliency as it relates to climate change, and as you mentioned, do everything we can to reverse the impact we've had on our climate, our economy is going to suffer tremendously in the United States, and it's going to hurt our stature in the world. It is going to exacerbate unemployment. It is uh, not good for our community. I think it, it very much will impact other countries um, and is impacting other countries to a greater extent than it is ours. However, we are still on the front lines of climate change. A huge swath of the United States, as we've seen over the last several weeks, um, is on the front lines of climate change. So absolutely, there's a lot that needs to be done. 
Yeah, so this is broader than just the kind of tit for tat. Is he doing enough for Puerto Rico? The question is, what is he doing about climate change in terms of limiting the temperature increase? What is he doing about making the whole country, especially those people most vulnerable, more resilient? And we saw in Katrina, for example, so it's not just a matter of being an island that's predominantly people of color. In Katrina, the lower income people of color didn't have the resources to get out, and they're the ones who disproportionately suffered and ended up you know, living in the Superdome in horrendous conditions, if they, assuming they survived, et cetera, whereas white middle class people were able to take off for other states and, and live elsewhere um, and come back later. And so this is the problem. It's going to global warming, even though the people who benefited from it for primarily the 1% and people doing well in our society, but the people who are going to pay are those who have benefited less economically in our society and got the least benefit out of this fossil fuel economy. Yeah, and the, the last thing I want to say about this, because I know we have a couple other things we want to hit before we close the podcast, uh, is that Puerto Rico uh, was already in crisis, and the crisis was a man-made crisis um, that was exacerbated by Wall Street and Congress. Um, you know, it was called a financial crisis, but really it was the exploitation of American citizens by, you know, the capitalist forces of our country and Congress has failed to act appropriately and people um, from politicians to celebrities to regular citizens have been trying in vain to get a real lasting solution for Puerto Rico. Uh, the storm is not going to make anything better. In fact, it makes it more urgent that we figure out how Puerto Rico can move forward. And that's the undertone when, when Trump jokes about, oh, we may get rid of the debt, right? He, like, Puerto Rico did something wrong. It was irresponsible. Right, so it's the same kind of attitude we get towards major American cities that I mean deindustrialized, de like Detroit. Right, what somehow? Well, th those people in Detroit just you know uh, ran up these big debts and can't aff afford police and fire protection. Not that it lost half its population because we literally encouraged manufacturers to 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 move their production overseas with our with our taxpayer money with federal policy. So. Uh, in a related area, this uh, people, the audience will see whether I'm making a uh, <laughs> tenuous segue or not. Uh, but industrial hemp has raised its head uh, in Wisconsin this week. It's interesting. The reason industrial hemp, which used to be a major industry and a major agricultural crop in Wisconsin, it's a very useful product. In fact, it could be helpful in global warming, actually. Um, it was banned is because of the mistaken notion that because it's a cousin of marijuana, that somehow it is like marijuana and can be smoked, and this isn't true. And so the Obama administration had allowed states, had changed the rules and allowed states to legalize hemp production, 22 states have. There's a bill led by Republican lawmakers from rural areas in Wisconsin uh, to legalize hemp, and it, it could be a major crop. We know much of rural Wisconsin is really ailing economically and certainly would need a crop that would grow well in Wisconsin, has, has a good market for. But here's what Governor Walker had to say, and I'm hoping this gets politifacted. We'll <laughs> see if anyone wants to encourage politifact to look at this. They can uh, contact politifact and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Scott Walker said, I have concern just in terms of anything that would lead to legalization, mainly because as we fight opiate and heroin abuse across the state, one of the things I hear repeatedly from public health, law enforcement, and others is that anything that's a gateway into some of these other areas is a big, big concern. I don't know which health officials he's talking to. Maybe he's talking to David Clark as far as a law enforcement official. 
But it is discredited that marijuana is a gateway drug to opiates, okay? It is discredited. And, but then there's the next step here, Rebecca, which is this is apparently industrial hemp as a gateway to opiate addiction. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's like, it, it is hilarious, but at the same time, incredibly sobering because as you mentioned, you know, there are rural counties in desperate need of economic revitalization. This is something Wisconsin was known for years ago. There's no reason why we shouldn't be doing this. Um, anyway, I know we only have about uh, a minute or so left, but one thing I wanted to mention um, that's happening right now as we speak is in Madison, uh, Lou Sosa, from Citizen Action and tens of thousands of citizens of Wisconsin, residents of Wisconsin are in Madison, um, you know, making their voices heard against this terrible sanctuary um, bill. And I, I don't have the bill numbers in front of me, but, uh, you know, essentially what we're seeing in, um, in Madison are Republicans making an effort to um, what, I, what I think is an unconstitutional effort, I've heard, to allow uh, police to I basically demand if people are citizens target certain communities. Um, I don't know if you have any more information on that, Robert, but it's something I know you've talked about it's in the past. part of the, there's been a whole attempt to deputize local government, local law enforcement to be part of, of, of immigration control at a time when Trump is threatening DACA and a number of cities around the country have stood up to this and have tried to actually protect basic human rights for everyone who lives there, because everyone who lives there as part of that community. And there's a right-wing attempt to undermine that and to punish any city that tries to provide any level of protection for, for, for other valuable members of the community, which includes the immigrant community. So Google it. There's a lot of information on it. And absolutely call your legislator, your senator and state legislator, and opposed uh, the bill that, it, that is attacking sanctuary cities. So with that... That's it for a very action-packed Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, to get more information on Citizen Action Wisconsin, you can go to our website, citizenactionwi.org. Till next week, thanks for joining us.